you know, I completely agree. I think the trials that are presented at ESC, they have immense uh, impact on our, um, you know, daily practice of cardiology. Um, but also, you know, I must say that I enjoy the other side, uh, which is meeting colleagues across the world and kind of seeing, you know, uh, how cardiology is practiced in different parts, parts of world. Um, you know, how the training uh, of cardiology goes and how their early career is shaped and what uh, struggles and challenges they go through. When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalara, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, so this one, you know, is, uh, is a special episode uh, based on what has just happened um, this past weekend at the European Study of Cardiology Congress um, you know, to me, ESC always is a blockbuster because so much good science, so much great science rather is presented um, at this forum. And, you know, multiple papers come out within a span of a weekend. And then, you know, for me, it just takes me over a month to just absorb everything, uh, you know, slowly read um, the fine print and the details. Um, so I've asked for help uh, from a really good friend of mine. Uh, we've known each other for many years and actually have been wanting her to come to Parallax as a guest. And, you know, we'll have that episode um, at some point this year or next year. Uh, but, you know, the focus of this episode is not the personal journey of Dr. Purvi Parvani, which I know is going to be very interesting. But, you know, here she is uh, sort of helping me out uh, with uh, all the knowledge that has come out of ESC. Uh, you know, sort of to digest that and sort of imbibe that and inculcate that in our daily practice. So without much further ado, I'm going to introduce uh, Dr. Parvani. Dr. Purvi Parvani is uh, a consultant cardiologist uh, with a focus on advanced multimodality imaging. I'm sure all of us who are listening to this episode know how passionate she is about imaging, you know, through her uh, dissemination of knowledge and information on various social media accounts. Um, and she is um, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Loma Linda University Health in Loma Linda, California. Purvi, welcome on the show, and thank you so much for doing this for me on such a short notice. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ankur. It's such an honor to be here, and uh, I know we have been uh, wanting to do this for a long time, so I'm so glad that uh, here we are together and we got I got this chance to do it with you. So thank you again for inviting Oh, no, the pleasure is mine. And, you know, I've enjoyed um, your journey through the years. And I've always learned immensely from everything you've, you've shared on social media, you know, whether it's uh, your amazing recipes of vegetarian food, or, um, you know, whether it's um, imaging with MRI and echo or, um, or you know, whether it's on uh, new trials. Um, and I think that's uh, a good segue into talking about ESC because, as I was mentioning earlier, ESC is sort of the highlight conference for me for uh, for, the, for the year, and it sort of has been for many years because somehow ESC manages to get, I think, arguably the best trials that change the face of how we practice cardiology. You know, that's at least my opinion. But um, you know, I'd like you to share more on what you think about ESC, and then you know, sort of start getting into trials that we're going to talk about today. 
Yeah, no, I think I agree with you. I think, um, uh, you know, I, I had not been to ESC before because of my visa issues when I was uh, training uh, to be a cardiologist. But since I've been an attending, I've attended every single ESC. And, uh, you know, it's kind of that uh, bolus of cardiology knowledge that comes at you. And, you know, um, uh, of course, I think I, you know, I completely agree. I think the trials that are presented at ESC, they have immense uh, impact on our, um, you know, daily practice of cardiology. Um, but also, you know, I must say that I enjoy the other side, uh, which is meeting colleagues across the world and kind of seeing, you know, uh, how cardiology is practiced in different parts, parts of world. Um, you know, how the training uh, of cardiology goes and how their early career is shaped and what uh, struggles and challenges they go through. So I think um, in last, um, you know, three years, um, actually two years that I attended last year was virtual. And so uh, so is this year. I think in those two years, um, you know, I, I developed some really um, good relationships uh, with friends across the world. And of course, um, you know, the science that the conference brings is uh, undoubtedly the best. Um, so I think I actually, uh, believe it or not, uh, we still get meeting days. And I actually took two meeting days to kind of sit down and, you know, just go through all the science. And it was at odd times. And I stayed up and, uh, you know, a uh, bit jet, jet lagged and still catching up on my sleep schedule. But, you know, there's just so much to learn and I'm still listening to um, so many, um, you know, uh, other um, sessions that happened that I wasn't able to catch, uh, you know, live. Um, so completely agree with you there. And I just cannot wait to be back uh, at ESC next year in Barcelona. And I hope that you come. <laughs> Yeah, no, Barcelona was uh, is special to me um, because that was the first time I presented a late breaker at a at a meeting, uh, you know, of the magnitude of ESC, and happened to be in Barcelona in 2017. Uh, you know, also happened to be the year uh, when we had our our first boy. So, you know, I vividly remember Barcelona for many reasons. Um, so, Purvi, uh, jumping right on. Um, let's start off with the first trial that you want to talk about, uh, which was presented and published, um, I believe, in the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, that is about uh, salt substitute uh, in, in diet and its effect on blood pressure and also mortality. So do you want to just uh, talk to us a little bit and the listenership about, uh, you know, what, you know, what the design of the trial was and what were they trying to study and sort of what are, what are the take-home messages and how it will impact your practice of medicine and cardiology? Yeah, of course. Um, thank you. Um, so I think uh, when we look at the public health impact, this was probably my most favorite uh, trial out of ESC. Um, they took, uh, you know, it's it's called the Salt Substitute and Stroke Study, um, SSASS. And uh, uh, basically uh, they took almost 20,000, almost 21,000 uh, patients um, uh, from 600 villages in rural China. And uh, these patients um, either, you know, had a history of stroke um, or um, they had history of uh, hypertension. In fact, in fact, 73%, I think, had CVA and 88% uh, hypertensive. Um, I think the mean age uh, was 65 and almost half of them were uh, women. And they followed these patients for uh, five years. Um, they randomly assigned them one-to-one -one ratio to the interventional uh, group, which uh, included, uh, you know, patients on um, or participants on salt substitute. And this salt substitute was 75% sodium chloride and 25% potassium chloride. Um, and then the control group, which was regular salt, which is 100% sodium chloride. And the primary outcome was um, stroke. And the secondary outcome was uh, major adverse uh, cardiovascular events and death from any cause. Um, and of course, there was a safety outcome of, um, uh, you know, clinical hyperkalemia. So I think uh, through pure study, I think we have known that, uh, you know, um, uh, increasing potassium and, you know, decreasing sodium has, um, a, you know, impact on the events, cardiovascular events. And 
um, but you you know it was an observational study and you know it wasn't very clear um, exactly what matters so traditionally if we look at the guidelines guidelines um, you know recommend a low salt but that is due to major impact on the blood pressure which in turn has impact on cardiovascular outcome and I think this was um, the uh, you know this was the study where they designed uh, the study to um, kind of understand what impact the salt salt has directly on the outcomes and I think the you know the the uh, outcomes uh, the results are spectacular so um, at the end of five years, they saw that uh, risk of uh, stroke was lower with the salt substitute than with the regular um, salt. Um, and um, this uh, reduced risk of stroke was almost 14%. Major cardiovascular events went down to almost uh, 13%. And also there was like this crazy decrease in all-cause mortality by 12%. Um, so I, I think that, uh, and, and, you know, along with that, the safety outcomes, as I was mentioning, um, the hyperkalemia was not significantly higher uh, with the salt substitute compared to the regular salt. Now, granted, they did not measure potassium um, in patients, but uh, I think they went to, um, um, you know, the, um, they, they really studied, uh, you know, every single participant and made sure that uh, patients were not admitted for hyperkalemia or there was no sudden cardiac death due to hyperkalemia, um, you know, in either of the arms. Um, so the conclusion of the study was that uh, amongst the patients or person who had history of stroke or um, and uh, uh, older than um, 60 years and had history of hypertension, um, the rate of stroke, major cardiovascular events, and death um, uh, were lower with a salt substitute um, than uh, with regular salt. Um, so I, I think that, uh, you know, of course, um, you know, it's a spectacular study um, because, you know, salt uh, is the essence of flavor, right? And I, I think if we look at the baseline salt consumption in Chinese population, it's almost 4.3 grams. Now, what's, you know, what's very interesting here is that if we look at world, uh, you know, as a whole, uh, I think almost... Uh, uh, you know, 5 billion world population uses 50% of salt, um, you know, through a dietary salt, uh, you know, by using it in cooking or seasoning um, or, you know, um, um, uh, or preserving the food. Um, but uh, then you have Western countries like United States where, you know, a lot of salt comes from the processed food. Um, so I, I think that's where, um, you know, one of the things is how generalizable this would be um, in the population where the dietary um, salt predominantly comes from the processed food, not from the, you know, salt that is regularly used in the food uh, through cooking. But I'd argue, actually, that 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 actually makes me excited because if, um, you know, the government of various countries, uh, you know, partner with the industry, this can be, um, you know, really good marketing point for the industry, you know, for the food industry where if they substitute, um, you know, sodium chloride to this mixture of um, potassium um, and sodium chloride, um, you know, it, it, I think I see it as a marketing opportunity um, because now you have a large trial showing clear benefit. Um, you know, the other, uh, you know, kind of pathophysiological question everyone is asking is, is it truly the reduction of the sodium or is it the increase in the potassium? And this is, you know, because there have been studies showing that increasing potassium, um, you know, does help cardiovascular events. And, you know, that brings me to the next point, because, um, you know, salt substitute, there are varieties, variety of salt substitute, and, you know, not all the salt substitute are the same with, uh, you know, 25% of potassium chloride. So we, we just don't know how this will plan out with other substitute, but at least we have one agent, um, you know, um, that at least has uh, shown efficacy now. And then, you know, as we were discussing this on social media, one of my friends who is not in medicine asked me, uh, so are you going to change this? And, you know, that's another thing. Like, uh, if if you look at this population, this was a higher risk population, you know, almost 70% with CVA, 88% with hypertension. So if you take younger population or the one, um, you know, without any history of hypertension, what's the applicability 
um, you know, um, of this study uh, in 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 uh, in our patients, right? So, I think uh, take home points. I think that uh, if you are if you have a patient who has history of resistant hypertension and particularly uh, struggling with uh, you know really bad um, cardiovascular events in life, I think I definitely suggest them to use a salt substitute. Um, there was a question about taste. How does it taste? And I actually, Ankur, have used salt substitute. It's not that bad. And I think that if uh, 21,000 patients, half of them were able to tolerate it, I think that our patients definitely can tolerate, uh, you know, a, a 25% potassium chloride uh, with 75% sodium chloride. So I think um, I definitely recommend my patients, but I'd love to your, hear your th- thoughts and what you think about the study. No, I, I agree with you. I think, uh, like you mentioned, uh, the public health impact of this uh, trial is going to be large. You know, I think as we progress into um, more time, you know, having passed since the publication of the, of the trial in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, you know, generalizability again is a, is always a question, you know, if it's done in the other, in some of the other parts of the world and how generalizable it is to the U S population or, maybe the population living in in the West. But I agree with you. You know, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for, um, you know, both state and federal governments to uh, institute policy changes and come up with, um, you know, guidelines as to what is permissible in terms of salt intake in processed food. Uh, You know, unfortunately, that is the kind of food that is readily available and is cheap uh, for the population to consume. So I think if, the overall prevalence of, you know, morbidity and mortality in the age group that was studied in this trial has to decrease and, and the burden of chronic disease has to decrease. I think this is a great intervention from a public health perspective. So I completely agree with you on that. I think translating it into, uh, you know, office-based practice for our patients, I'm, I'm sure you and I see patients like this in our clinics all the time. Um, so, you know, the question for you is, Purvi, and, you know, I don't think I've used a salt substitute. So I'm going to ask you, what are some of the, like, practically, what are some of the brands that you're aware of that, you know, we can suggest our patients use, uh, you know, from a very practical perspective, you know, in, in, in clinic, if someone asks you, okay, doc, um, you know, now that the study is out, what do you, what do you want me to purchase from the grocery store? Yeah, so the one that I have used is the new salt or no salt. And, um, you know, I think, frankly speaking, I have to, um, you know, go and look what exactly it contains. Um, but that's the one that I have used. And I think it does have potassium chloride. I exactly don't know what is the percentage of potassium uh, chloride um, in it. Um, so I think that's that's what I have used. And, you know, it's it's actually not bad. And, you know, I, I think, uh, at least in California, I have seen, um, you know, uh, patients, uh, you know, using that. Um, I'm, I'm actually looking at the packaging and I actually don't see how much potassium chloride is in there. So I'll have to do some digging. Uh, but that's the one that I have used. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, there are others, um, uh, but this is the one that, you know, patients have tolerated. And I think I always also recommend use of seasoning, um, you know, with uh, spices and stuff, you know, particularly given the um, background, cultural background that I come from and um, when we are from, um, I think uh, spices, herbs, uh, seasoning definitely, uh, you know, leads to decreased salt use. And, uh, you know, that's, that also works with, uh, you know, a lot of my patients um, that I see. Yeah, no, excellent. Um, okay, so moving on, the next trial that you picked is, is the STEP trial. Um, so do you want to tell us more about, uh, about that trial, Purvi? Yeah, so, you know, just uh, staying on the theme of hypertension. <laughs> so, uh, STEP trial uh, is a, you know, again, a randomized uh, control trial. Uh, it was, uh, it, it enrolled almost uh, 8,500 Chinese patients with hypertension between the age of uh, 60 and 80 years and um, randomly assigned them to either intensive hypertension treatment, which was defined as 
uh, systolic blood pressure target between 110 and uh, uh, 130, and the standard arm, which was uh, which was with systolic blood pressure target between 130 and less than 150. Um, and you know, it was very done, like very very neat. Uh, 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 you know, the way they did it, uh, they provided home blood pressure monitoring um, uh, by, uh, and they, they gave a smartphone-based application and each patient would transmit the results uh, through the application. Um, and, uh, you know, so the overall uh, results um, after, I think I want to say they had a median follow-up of three years and, um, you know, the primary outcome was composite of uh, stroke, um, ACS, um, uh, heart failure, uh, coronary revascularization, uh, atrial fibrillation, or death from cardiovascular um, cause. So that happened in 3.5% um, in the intensive uh, group uh, compared to 4.6% in the standard group. So that leads to relative risk reduction of around 26%. And they also noted that 33% uh, relative risk reduction in stroke as well as acute coronary syndrome uh, within that uh, intensive group with blood pressure target between 110 uh, to 130. So uh, I think that, uh, you know, this trial, if you, um, you know, we, we had seen that uh, with SPRINT, we had seen that the lower um, blood pressure in the intensive group um, you know, um, had been associated with better cardiovascular outcomes, except that there were some major tolerability issues. Um, and I think um, that kind of got clarified in STEP trial, um, which definitely, you know, had healthier patients. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that uh, would this be applicable to our clinical practice? Um, I think so. I think that, uh, you know, if you look at this trial, um, you know, they, they actually, the mean age of the patients was 65 years. So I, I think we definitely have many patients in that age group um, that are relatively healthier. And I think that, you know, uh, of course, uh, you know, um, the, the, the target blood pressure of between 110 and 130, it's something that, uh, you know, we can, uh, at least inform the patient that the better the blood pressure, um, the better the outcomes, particularly in healthier population. I think the question remains, um, you know, what happens when you take sicker patients, which by almost, uh, you know, a lot of our cardiovascular patients have multiple comorbidities. And do we struggle then uh, with, you know, hypotension and, um, you know, acute kidney injuries, etc. So I think one has to be careful um, you know, choosing the patients when um, going for intensive uh, blood pressure control. But I think we do have a trial now that uh, has, um, you know, resolved that tolerability issue that came up with uh, SPRINT. Excellent, co excellent comments, uh, Purvi. And, you know, thank you so much for comparing this with SPRINT because that's the only other trial, uh, you know, of that magnitude that comes into mind. Um, so, you know, just, just discuss about the generalizability of the results. Again, this is, you know, again, uh, you know, Chinese population. Uh, what do you think about uh, extrapolating these results to, for example, South Asians, uh, you know, people from other, uh, you know, Eastern Europe, European ancestries or, you know, even uh, people out in the West, whether it's, you know, North America, including Canada and the United States or some of the Scandinavian countries or South America or Australia? I mean, what do you think about like generalizing the results to all ethnicities. And the reason I ask this is not only because of its relevance to the, to the globe and to the world, but, you know, as you, as you're well aware, um, you know, obviously you're living in California, so you, you're seeing, uh, you know, diverse ethnic backgrounds and populations. And how, how do you sort of extrapolate these results to your practice and patients you see from multiple, uh, you know, ethnic backgrounds and, and like a diverse patient population? No, that's an excellent question. I think that, uh, you know, again, I, I think it's the phenotype that uh, matters more here than the ethnic background, in my opinion, you know, what exactly is the patient coming from? Because again, um, these patients in this trial, at least are relatively younger and they're relatively healthier uh, compared to 
uh, you know, a standard uh, uh, cardiovascular patient that we see in clinic with uh, CKD, diabetes mellitus, and uh, you know other issues. Now, this trial did have you know 19% patients with diabetes, which Sprint I think excluded all the patients with diabetes. So, and I think in this trial they did have 6% patients with uh, coronary artery disease. But I do think, you know, I, I think it's interesting, right, Ankur? I mean, if we look at uh, in general to uh, in our clinic population, I think the struggle is never, oh, you are 130, let's bring you back to 110. You know, the struggle is always that your blood pressure is 150 and it goes, you know, uh, 10 times more than 150 in a week and I need to bring that down, right? So so I guess we, we just have so much to... Uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of achieve in this uh, in this blood pressure uh, range, right? Like it's not that we are all we have patients ready to kind of go from you know 130 to 110. Mostly, all of us we struggle with high blood pressure that are not at goal goal even by the standard guidelines, the conventional guidelines. So. So I think, you know, in, in this trial, actually 33% of the patients in both the arms had average blood pressure of, I want to say, 138, uh, less than 138, and they did bring those down. So, so, so I think that, you know, would it be easier for us to go from our standard, uh, you know, blood pressure uh, uh, kind of targets to tell the patient that go down to 110 because your outcomes are better? I'm not sure. I think that we still have ways to go before we get to that point. But if you have the right patient uh, who comes and, uh, you know, wants to have better outcomes and ask you that question, you have some data is all I would say. Yeah, and so um, in terms of intensive lowering of blood pressure, what are some of the go-to medications that you use? Like, you know, the, we get this question all the time, right? Like, so I can, I can tell you what I use in my practice. I mean, my, my usual go-to, I think, to start off with, or I probably start off with a calcium channel blocker, dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, and a hydro and a thiazide combination. That's That's how I usually start you know, my patients on antihypertensive medications. And I, I tend to use both these drugs um, in primary hypertension a lot more. Now, obviously, if someone has concomitant coronary disease or chronic kidney disease, if there's a history of stroke, I'll obviously go to renin-angiotensin or aldosterone system receptor antagonists. But if they're just primary hypertension, um, then the idea is to start them on amlodipine and, um, you know, like a thiazide diuretic, uh, you know, that's, that's how I practice. And my thiazide diuretic, the go-to is, um, is chlorothaladone. But I'm curious to learn how you practice, uh, you know, escalation of antihypertensive therapy. Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And I, I think I, I kind of, uh, you know, my thiazide uh, diuretic uh, of choice is also chlorothaladone, um, you know, because of the efficacy. Um, but I guess, again, it comes down to, I, you know, I, I see a lot of patients in the women, women's clinic and I see patients with Inoka and Minoka. And then traditionally, um, you know, if you look at uh, that subgroup, uh, again, calcium channel blockers are great medicine, particularly diltiazem. And I do use um, ACE inhibitor again for that endothelial uh, effect. And, uh, uh, you know, there have been some small uh, studies in women. So I guess it, it all depends on who the, who are these patients, um, you know, that you are seeing. Um, but yeah, primary, primary, uh, hypertension. Um, I completely agree with you with the standard, uh, you know, approach, uh, with, uh, diuretics and, uh, calcium channel blocker. I'll most never use a beta blocker. Um, now it is also not favored by guidelines. And then, um, you know, depending on what they have, uh, albuminuria or CKD, then I would uh, add an ACE inhibitor. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, um, I guess in cardiology, we, we don't get to see those primary hypertension, essential hypertension patients that commonly I, I see mostly women um, that are suffering from Inoka and Minoka. So I modified my uh, practice accordingly. So the next one that we are going to discuss here, I think Emperor Preserved is 
is a landmark study and um, for many reasons, but I'm not going to steal the limelight from you. I'm going to talk, talk, talk us about uh, the emperor preserved study and the implications it has for patients that belong to a very difficult bucket for us as cardiologists. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, finally something, um, you know, in the heart failure preserved uh, ejection fraction, um, you know, subtype. So, yeah, Emperor Preserved, um, it uh, randomized um, almost 6,000 patients with NIHA class 2 to 4 heart failure and ejection fraction of greater than 40% uh, to um, empaglifosin 10 milligrams once a day or placebo. Uh, both on top of standard uh, therapies. And this was studied at 622 uh, centers in uh, 23 countries. Um, and uh, yeah, these patients uh, were required to have a, a GFR of, uh, you know, more than 20 and um, um, higher along uh, either the structural heart disease, which was, I think, just a dilated LV or, um, you know, dilated left atrium or a heart failure hospitalization within um, the uh, past year. Uh, so almost uh, 49% of these patients were diabetic, but almost half of them were non-diabetic. And 45% uh, 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 women, a uh, mean um, ejection fraction was actually 54 and mean age of the patients were 72. And almost 82% of the patients had NYHA um, class two symptoms. Uh, so the uh, primary endpoint was a composite of uh, cardiovascular death and hospitalization for heart failure. And um, uh, that was reduced by uh, uh, 21% uh, with the SGLT2 inhibitor, which here it was empaglifosin um, with a number needed to treat of uh, 31. Now this was driven by a reduction in hospitalization so the first heart failure hospitalization decreased by 29% and the cardiovascular mortality, which was not significantly reduced, it was 9%. So basically the driving part of primary endpoint um, was the you know heart failure hospitalization. And I'm sure you caught some, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, roar on social media about this, uh, uh, you know, and why the, you know, kind of study was a bit criticized because mostly the primary endpoint was driven by heart failure hospitalization. The secondary endpoint was recurrent heart failure hospitalization, and that was uh, reduced uh, by 27%. Um, also, the GFR slope was almost half by empaglifosin, um, you know, versus placebo. So, so I think, um, as you correctly pointed out, this is another, you know, practice changing landmark trial. I think that uh, there have been, um, you know, so many um, uh, investigations and trials that were done in, uh, you know, different uh, study groups before this. And, uh, you know, finally, we get something um, that was um, uh, that's positive. Um, I think that this is definitely going to be um, uh, practice changing. Um, I think that uh, we all see these patients in our clinic, in our hospital. And, uh, you know, now there's something, you know, we always, you know, I, I don't know, whenever I talk to my fellows, I always told them that I don't understand heart failure preserved EF. Um, and there is no medication. And finally, I think, uh, as they pointed out during the presentation, this probably will translate to change in the guidelines, although the ESC heart failure guidelines was, uh, you know, were present, were uh, presented during the session. So probably, um, you know, uh, uh, probably another update will come out in those guidelines. That's at least what the presenters indicated. Um, so I think this is very applicable um, in our day-to-day -day practice. I think that if you take, uh, 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 you know, overall, um, the patients that they recruited, uh, you know, was more than 40%. Uh, and uh, if, we, if we look at the pooled analysis that was presented um, during the SE again, um, that, uh, you know, kind of combined the uh, 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 patients uh, participating in emperor reduced and emperor preserved um again um you know both the uh, trials um have uh, this consistent um efficacy when it comes to heart failure outcomes and uh, 
So this, uh, there was almost a 30% reduction in the hospitalization across a range of the EF uh, from less than 25% to less than 65%. And then more than 65%, they observed this attenuation effect. Um, uh, but, you know, if we look at um, the same group, uh, the effect of the empaglifosin was way greater than that was than, than what was observed with Entresto in Paragon HF. So uh, Paragon HF was negative, but the effect that it had, um, you know, uh, uh, the empaglifosin was way greater. Um, and then, you know, this uh, effect of uh, 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 when they did the pooled analysis, the effect on the renal outcomes, however, was different uh, between the two. Um, so uh, Emperor reduced um, had shown, uh, you know, reduction in more than 15% decrease in GFR and renal death, but um, Emperor preserved wasn't uh, significant for that. So again, um, you know, what, what does it come down to? I think that, uh, yes, they took patients of, uh, you know, uh, now uh, what is classified as heart failure, mildly reduced EF between the 40 to 50% and then more than 50%. And we traditionally think of heart failure preserved EF as uh, more than 50%. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, they, they did combine uh, both these groups, but um, you know, I think it's it still is. Uh, I think it still is applicable because um, I think that basically more than fifty, more than forty percent EF right now. Um, you know, this is how the guidelines uh, tell us. There's not much to go by, and I think that this uh, this medication definitely adds a lot. Um, to the existing literature, and I think that we all are going to use. And when it comes to more than 65% uh, EF patients, I mean, if you think about it, uh, if you take more than 65% EF, and if those patients have diabetes, you already have a um, you know indication to prescribe the SDLT2 inhibitors, and um, you know more than 65% EF and no diabetes population. That's the only population that probably remains where you're not going to prescribe it. But otherwise, this is you know very much um, this is this is very much applicable to the uh, clinical practice. I think the presenter had um, suggested that they're going to have um, this further analysis of the EF groups at uh, AHA. So that would be very interesting data. Um, you know, to look at uh, what exactly happens uh, when you take 40 to 50 and then more than 50% EF. So overall, uh, you know, uh, practice changing medicine and uh, totally a win for our patients. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Purvi. So in a really vexing patient population, like you've suggested, uh, no medication has worked um, whatsoever. And... Um, you know, I some of the um, some of the other earlier SGLT2 inhibitor trials which were published in the New England Journal before Emperor was presented at ESC. You know, showed that there may be a reduction um, in heart failure hospitalization with this particular class of drug. And now we have a definitive trial. And thank you so much for going over the percentages of uh, you know primary endpoint reduction and secondary endpoint reduction. I think those would be extremely relevant when we discuss this with our patients. So my question to you is, um, I mean, look, we see these patients all the time in our clinics. And, um, you know, they comprise 50% of the overall heart failure cohort of patients. Um, so are you now going to start prescribing these patients empagliflozin um, 10 milligrams once daily as you see them? You know, Ankur, it's interesting, but I have... I. I actually had started prescribing these patients, uh, you know, the medicine. I, I don't know when the first, you know, both Emperor Reduced and DAPA HF, um, you know, the, these medicines, uh, if you look at it, like the way they work, the impact they have on our, um, you know, overall uh, physiology of the body. I really believed in these. And I do think that these are going to be statins of tomorrow. Um, and, you know, there is talk of having them in, uh, you know, water. And I totally agree with that. Uh, I think for diabetic patients, like I did not, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't worry about, uh, you know, the oh, what happens to the creatinine. Oh, I have to watch out for hypotension. The data is so strong 
that I was prescribing, you know, there was a lot of debate about, oh, who's going to be prescribing? Is it going to be the nephrologist? Is it going to be primary care? And, or is it going to be cardiologist? And I go to a community um, health center here and I do a clinic with my fellows. And, you know, I have been very aggressive in prescribing this medicine because I totally believe in this, um, you know, class uh, effect um, and I, I totally think that this is going to be the game changer. It already has proved to be a game changer, but I just cannot wait to see, uh, you know, what comes out uh, further out of this. I also put my uh, parents on this, by the way. My dad made, met, uh, you know, indication. So I, I'm a firm believer in SGLT2 inhibitors and I will continue to prescribe it. Yes. Yeah, no, likewise. Uh, you know, the only reason I, I brought this up uh, is that, you know, in in my practice, uh, you know, um, with with other colleagues at least, and I, I see a lot of inertia still around uh, prescription of this drug class. You know, they're like, you know, it's it's a diabetic drug. You should be having an endocrinologist prescribe it. Should be, you know, like I said, have a nephrologist prescribe it. If you look at the recent prescription patterns, actually, the prescription, and you know, these are some for some from some of some of the industry data from AstraZeneca, uh, at least. And, you know, AstraZeneca is by no way, shape or form the sponsor of this episode. Uh, just just putting it out there. But some of the industry um, data that I've looked at have actually shown that the prescription is slowly increasing among cardiologists. And it's sort of considered the cardiology heart failure clinic drug and not an endocrinology clinic or a nephrology clinic drug. So I completely agree with you. I think the major inertia in cardiology, I, you know, I, I agree with you that there is inertia. And I think that comes predominantly from this fear of side effect that, oh, this is a new medicine. What am I going to get myself into? Do I have to follow that creatine? Am I going to watch this patient for development of diabetic ketoacidosis? What is going to happen to the sugar? What's going to happen with the UTI if they develop UTI? So, but, you know, overall, I mean, I think the safety and efficacy, um, you know, it's pretty good. It's not as common to observe any of those things that I just mentioned. Um, and I think that's where the inertia has come from. But, you know, once you start prescribing, you realize that it's actually easy medicine to maintain. And I think we saw a similar pattern even with Entresto, right? People were fearful. I, I remember I being fearful of prescribing Entresto, um, you know, if I'm going to miss something. But now, uh, you know, as the medicine is in market um, and we order more and more of it, I think we just become comfortable uh, don't you think um, that that's the predominant reason for a cardiologist uh, to have that inertia? Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I th it's it's funny you mentioned that, but but it's true because I think the one thing cardiologists do not want to manage is Fournier's gangrene, um, you know, which you know was you know unfortunately was advertised. I mean, I mean it it occurs. I, you know, don't get me wrong, and I think it's important to be um, aware of it. It's important to be educated about it. Um, you know, but like you're not going to see four years gangrene on every patient you put on an SGLT2 inhibitor. So, uh, you know, and just the, the data are so ironclad. And, you know, like I said, the class effect is is profound that, I mean, particularly, you know, and before Emperor Preserve was presented, like you, you the number needed to treat uh, for a quadruple backbone to prevent one mortality is four, um, you know, so... Uh, the data are super strong and, you know, if cardiologists can prescribe aspirin like water um, and aspirin, as we now know, you know, from the three primary prevention trials is not uh, as benign of a drug as we initially thought it was. Um, then, you know, I, and aspirin has a higher NNT than, you know, the SGLT2Is as, as quadruple backbone. You know, I think we're, we're just, we, we should not be, taking this life-saving therapy away from our patients. Um, so I, I agree with you. So moving, moving on. So the next trial that you've picked is a very interesting trial. And again, it may not be practice changing for a lot of us, but it certainly is very practice informing. And that is the loop trial. So you want to go over the, the rationale and the design and the results of the loop trial? Yeah, of course. So yeah, as you correctly pointed out, it's the practice informing because now with Apple Watch, I'm sure that you're getting all those, uh, you know, consults in clinic and, uh, you know, uh, patients coming with these uh, 
strips of uh, arrhythmia showing arrhythmias and AFib uh, that their Apple Watch have detected. So I, I think this was, uh, you know, really informative trial. So this was uh, performed at uh, Danish centers. They recruited uh, around 6,000 patients um, between age 70 to 90, almost 47% women. Um, patients had uh, risk factors, predominantly either hypertension, diabetes, heart failure, or previous stroke. And they were randomized one to three fashion uh, to uh, ILR monitoring, which was revealed link by Medtronic. And again, not sponsored by any company here, but um, that's what they used or standard of care. Um, and, uh, you know, 90% of the patients had uh, hypertension and almost, uh, uh, I think the median chart bar score here was four and uh, they were followed for almost uh, 65 months. So um, as any of us can imagine, if it was diagnosed more, um, uh, if it was diagnosed more in the ILR group, I think it was 32% versus 12%. Um, and I think the me median duration of monitoring here was 39 months. And then, of course, the patients that were diagnosed with AFib were likely to get oral anticoagulation. So the rate of anticoagulation was also higher in the ILR group. So that was 29 uh, or almost 30 percent uh, to 13 percent. But however, um, you know, this increase in the AFib and increase in the oral anticoagulation, um, it didn't uh, it didn't uh, translate into a lower risk of stroke or uh, uh, any systemic embolism with ILR versus the standard um, uh, care. Um, and also there was no difference in all-cause mortality, cardiovascular death, or major bleeding. Um, so, so I think this is, a, you know, AFib um, is the most common arrhythmia that we see. We all know that AFib can be there uh, when patients don't have symptoms and you know, we know that there are a lot of patients remain undiagnosed. And I, I know that I am very aggressive when it comes to detection of AFib, um, because I do think that stroke is a disabling, um, uh, you know, disease to have. And if we look at the guidelines, European and U.S. guidelines both recommend uh, screening for AFib for, um, you know, patients that are 65 and uh, or older with a standard EKG when they come to your clinic. And if they have risk of um, a stroke, then more systemic and aggressive uh, intense screening. So, so I think that this question comes out all the time, right? Like you have a, a you know halter monitor or loop or any other monitor that shows AFib uh, for a brief period, and what do we do about it, right? And you know some of us are more aggressive than others, but basically that's the answer that uh, you know this trial uh, gave us. So. Almost 50% of the strokes we know that are linked to AFib. And if we take the cryptogenic stroke, almost 30% of them have underlying AFib. So, so I, and, and we know that we detect, uh, you know, more AFib when we put uh, any sort of monitor on the patients. And, you know, Ankur, what was interesting is that uh, at the Heart Rhythm, a European Heart Rhythm Society meeting earlier this year, they uh, presented stroke stop trial, and that actually had uh, uh, screening via uh, intermittent EKG reading taken twice a day for two weeks, and that trial was positive. So they had a longer follow-up of almost seven years, um, and this was longer than loop. Um, and but they had a significantly lower rate of primary composite. Uh, I think it was stroke, systemic embolism, bleeding, and all-cause death. So it was a so one trial that was positive that was I think published recently in uh, Lancet um, with a longer follow-up and with EKG intermittent EKG readings. Um, you know, done uh, twice a uh, uh, twice uh, daily for uh, two weeks. Uh, versus another trial, which is with loop, uh, shorter follow-up and uh, negative study, right? So I, I think that what matters is, you know, what exactly is the significant atrial fibrillation? And I would think that if you are able to detect atrial fibrillation randomly through the day, you know, on an EKG, you probably have that atrial fibrillation for a longer than six minute period, because that would be very odd to pick just randomly if that is just happening for a brief period on an EKG. So I think it's a type of the AFib, uh, you know, stroke stop 
uh, picked up, which probably was more clinically significant, more uh, longer in duration. And uh, of course, they had a, a longer follow-up. And that's why probably that trial was significant versus loop was not significant. So I guess we are not going to be worried about, um, you know, that subclinical ACID that gets detected. At least now we have some data to inform our patients um, and kind of, you know, give them that, uh, um, you know, the, the good news that um, it probably doesn't matter if you have brief AFib detected on your Apple Watch um, versus, um, you know, the longer duration. So, yeah, no, I, I think I, I'm in complete agreement with, and, you know, by the way, thank you for bringing up Stroke Stop because Stroke Stop was not presented at ESC, but was sort of published in Lancet while ESC was happening. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, the, the loop was presented at ESC. Um, and, um, you know, you, you hit the nail on its head when you said that stroke stop was twice daily EKGs. Um, and, you know, for two weeks, longer follow-up. Loop was continuous monitoring, shorter follow-up. Uh, the cutoff was six minutes for loop. And, you know, what is the likelihood of you picking up uh, AFib on two EKGs, uh, you know, in a 24-hour period, you're probably going to have much more than six minutes AFib burden. Um, so, you know, I, I think the message is sort of synchronous. I think if you put the two studies together like you did, that is, you know, if your AFib burden is longer than six minutes, it's it's a better idea. I mean, you know, stroke stop didn't really quantify the burden of AFib, but if it's longer than six minutes or if you have a higher AFib burden, I think, and with the with the requisite risk factors that we know of that predispose one to a higher risk of, annual, you know, higher annualized risk of stroke from AFib, stroke being a disabling disease, like you mentioned, you know, better off um, being on an anticoagulant. And we've got very potent, very safe anticoagulants. So just be safe and prescribe your patients anticoagulants um, if the burden of AFib is higher. But again, you know, like we mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, uh, practice informing trials. Um, so with that, um, uh, Purvi, I think we're going to end with uh, with an important public health message. You know, we started off with a public health trial. We're going to end with a public health trial. Um, and before I begin with influenza vaccinations, uh, I think it's an important public health message to uh, to everyone. I mean, the vast majority of our listeners are physicians and cardiologists, but, you know, it's it's ridiculous to see that even amongst physicians, um, you know, there are some who believe that vaccination is not the way to go. And it sort of, it, it befuddles my mind to even think that there are many physicians who can, who think like that. So I think it's important to get vaccination for COVID folks. I think uh, Purvi would probably second that message. I just wanted to wanted to use the platform of vaccination uh, and IAMI, um, you know, to sort of, you know, deliver the message on COVID vaccines. But I'll have you sort of resonate that message and sort of talk about IAMI trial then. Yeah, no, I think it's un very unfortunate, uh, the hesitancy that we see uh, within the physician group. And I guess it probably comes from, you know, all this uh, preconceived notion that we have bef before uh, we go to med school and before we get our degrees, I guess, that kind of remain ingrained uh, as we go through our degrees, right? And, you know, I, I don't I don't know the way the issue has become so politically charged in the United States. Uh, it's unfortunate. Um, and I think you know, I, I don't know if you saw my uh, social media story yesterday, but it's it's really, it's kind of sad that, you know, there is something now that is 100% preventable in a country like United States, and we are still struggling with this, and we are seeing kids, and we are seeing young individuals, um, you know, suffering, um, dying because of this uh, condition that is 100% preventable. So couldn't agree more with you, and I hope that you know, this trial, uh, as we talk about it, uh, it'll make people more aware of um, the uh, the advantages that come with vaccination and particularly with COVID vaccination since we are still, you know, in this pandemic. So IAMI trial, um, they, um, they unfortunately were actually halted early because of COVID-19 pandemic, but they managed to enroll, I think, um, 
um, 2,500 patients or 2,500 patients, which was 50% of the population, they 58% of the population they had expected to enroll. Um, they uh, they randomized uh, these patients uh, in one-to-one fashion uh, to receive uh, either influenza vaccine or placebo within 72 hours of um, of cardiac catheterization um, or um, you know hospitalization. So they included actually uh, you know patients with STEMI and STEMI high-risk uh, PCI. Um, CAD admissions, et cetera. And uh, median age of uh, uh, patients here was 60 years. Um, um, low women, 18% were women. Uh, primary endpoint was composite of all-cause death, MI, and stent thrombosis at 12 uh, months. Um, and uh, they also tested the secondary outcome of all-cause death, uh, cardiovascular death, MI, and stent thrombosis in a hierarchical, uh, te- by using a hierarchical testing strategy. So, the overall result found that the primary outcome um, had occurred uh, 5.3% uh, patients in the vaccine group versus 7.2% in the placebo group. So really, uh, you know, really glorious 28% reduction in the primary endpoint. And, uh, you know, when we look at the secondary endpoints, um, rate of uh, rates of uh, death from any cause and um, cardiovascular death were lower in vaccine group compared to the placebo group with a very impressive reduction of 41%. So also the what was interesting in this is um, that uh, they did not observe uh, any difference uh, in the rate of myocardial infarction with either of the groups, uh, right? So we, we don't know by which uh, mechanism, um, you know, the influenza vaccine works, but it clearly works, not just uh, in preventive cardiovascular death, uh, but also, you know, death from any cause. Um, So I think the, if we look at the big questions, I think these patients, I, I personally think that they chose a really good period taking those patients with, uh, you know, STEMI and STEMI, um, you know, uh, they come to the hospital, they're probably mostly there for 72 hours. They chose that period within 72 hours, they they gave the influenza vaccine, um, although it was in influenza season. So some of the important questions we ask is that, you know, can this be applicable all year around? Because we know this is not the only trial. Before this trial, there have been multiple small uh, randomized control trial and the observational data that show that, um, you know, influenza vaccine and beneficial, um, although this was, this is the largest trial to date, as far as I know. So, I guess the question is, can we give, give influenza vaccine all year around in our cardiovascular patients as they come for the, you know, with ACS? Um, and then, you know, the other thing is, what is, you know, as a cardiologist, what is my role, right? So um, I think that right now, at least we don't give influenza vaccine in cardiology clinic, but is that something that we should embark on in our, um, you know, in general, um, in cardiology practices across the world? Um, and also, um, um, you know, the other thing is that can we give, we know that there was some data with flu influenza vaccine as well as COVID vaccine taken together and it was synergistic and positive, um, but can can this be done together? And, you know, what does, what does the futuristic uh, plan look like and who's going to give this? Um, right now, if we look at the ESC and AHA guidelines, it's a class 1B uh, indication already. Um, so should we embark on this journey and also start giving our patients influenza since it is going to prevent those cardiovascular deaths? Um, so we'll see, you know, what the future looks like. But for now, we have a very strong data from a study that could not be completed uh, due to COVID uh, fully, um, but still uh, with, uh, you know, really glorious and impressive results uh, with a clear reduction in cardiovascular as well as all-cause mortality. Yeah, no, excellent. Um, excellent message there, Purvi. Um, I think, you know, I mean, as a routine, I would ask, Uh, patients uh, when I would see them in clinic during the flu season as to whether or not they've had their flu shot. And um, I've been doing the same for for COVID-19 and, you know, sort of being a proponent for, you know, sort of influencing them to get the vaccine, you know, sort of doing my part as a a good citizen. I think 
the time is is upon us, right? When the when the flu season hits, and uh, I'm probably going to do the same. You know, just say both the flu vaccine as well as the COVID vaccine. Vaccination is important. Vaccination saves lives. So that's what I'm going to do. And you know, now I have a trial to support my um, my hypothesis. So, Purvi, thanks again for this. This was uh, just a fire hose of knowledge and information, and you did an excellent job in going over the data and explaining the rationale of all these studies, you know, how they would impact our practice. Any closing thoughts or remarks for our listenership? Um, I, I think, no, thank you for inviting me. I think that, uh, you know, it, it comes down to how much we apply uh, all this knowledge into our clinical practice and how uh, we change our lives of our patients. So um, I hope that, uh, you know, it was useful to the listeners and uh, yeah, thank you again for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. This was incredible. Thank you for doing this for us at such short notice. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.